Welcome to Book Pines Episode 3. This time around, Lori joins me and she decided it was time to revisit an old friend, Stephen King. But much like your high school reunion, nothing is quite as good as you remember it. Finders Keepers is King's most recent novel and is the second book in the Bill Hodges trilogy. Why are we talking about the second book instead of the first book? Well, honestly, we didn't know that it was the second book in the trilogy until we started reading it. Anyway, accompanied by the subtle tones of smutty-nosed old brown dog ale, we jump into the middle of the Stephen King mystery pool. Finders Keepers starts out with a grisly murder of an aging and reclusive writer by an obsessed fan in 1978 who steals the author's money and his valuable unpublished notebooks. That obsessed fan finds himself in jail for an unrelated crime and is forced to wait nearly 40 years to return to his hidden treasure and finally read the great unknown works. Before he can do that, however, someone else finds the notebooks. This is when Detective Bill Hodges and his sidekicks Holly and Jerome join the chase to see who can find the notebooks first and, you know, not get killed in the process. So, standard spoiler warnings and language warnings apply. There's an extra spoiler warning for some of King's other works, specifically the Dark Tower series. If you haven't read those books, you might just want to skip ahead about seven or eight minutes. Fair warning, you will miss Lori's delightful rant about her troubles with Stephen King as a stand-in for God. Rest assured, there is plenty more ranting to go around. So grab whatever cold brew you have in the refrigerator and consume. So Lori. Hi. Welcome to Casa de Book Pints. Fabulous. Books, pints. Books, pints, got it all. So, first of all, let's talk about your uh, beer deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about this delicious beer that is not here? Well, I was here? looking for uh, a good chocolate stout. Uh, mm. This past summer when I was in the UK, I had the best chocolate stout I had ever had in my entire life. It actually tasted less like yeast and more like chocolate. Mm-hmm. So, I've been on a search for a good chocolate stout, and I was doing a lot of research online, and I found a Brooklyn brewery dark chocolate stout and um it just sounded amazing you know i was reading up on all the stats on the the webpage and this mystical wonderful stout is not here it got left at work which means that i'm very lucky if it's still there when i get in tomorrow (laughs) i I know the people you work with. you know the people i work with they may be drinking it right now now. as we speak on the job Um, but we have a fine replacement the old brown dog this has been my drink of choice lately just it's what's always in the refrigerator okay i like the brown ales i don't know why i don't know why i've gotten into the brown ales now. Now, I do have a question. Do you yeah. have a different dog than I do? I have Olive. Is... Uh, no, this is, it's just Olive. So Olive is the old brown dog. Olive is the old brown dog. Okay. I don't know anything about Olive, if she is somehow involved in the making of the beer. <laughs> she supervises. She supervises. <laughs> uh, I would hope so. Uh, they tend to do some nice flavorful stuff, and I like it. And of course, the, the dog is a definite bonus. I'll drink anything that has a dog on the front. <laughs> Look, it says, uh, check us out online at Smutty Nose for events, releases, and great smerchandise. Smerchandise. Very clever. All right. So now that we so we have the beer in place, we had to scramble. Not really. Just had to open my refrigerator. Well done. Always ready in an emergency. Always ready in an emergency. But tell us, what are we reading today? Uh, well, so today we were reading Finders Keepers by Stephen King, uh, which, as it turns out, is the second book in a trilogy. Indeed. So when we when you picked the book, you told me that you were you were mad at Stephen King. Yes. So let's just let's just clear the air. Okay. Let's, what is it? Can we talk for a minute about Stephen King? We can talk for a minute about. Okay. Stephen. So we're gonna we're gonna probably talk for a while about Stephen King. I have in the past mm-hmm. adored Stephen King. Okay. Um, I loved him throughout my teenage years. I loved him through my early twenties. I was a huge fan of his books. I read everything that he wrote. I read the Bachman books. I read 
his nonfiction, Dance Macabre, you know, everything. I mm-hmm. even read On Writing Well, even though it wasn't something that I needed to read, just because I found his voice to be that alluring. Right. And Stephen King has a massive series of books, which is the Dark Tower series, mm-hmm. uh, which he started writing before I was even born. Um, the first one, The Gunslinger, was written in like 1976 or 1975. Yep. Before, he may have even written it before he wrote his actual Stephen King books, like Carrie and Christine and everything I, else. I think Carrie was the first was the thing first. he ever wrote. But I don't know if it was like and it was the first thing he ever published but i don't know if it was the first thing he mm, ever that's wrote a good question because know. he talks a lot in you know in his works about how the idea of roland which is a principal character in the mm-hmm. dark tower series had occurred to him when he was a child and it came from the spaghetti westerns that he watched yeah. as a kid anyway uh, he had written those books over the course of 20 years or so, and I become very invested in characters. I love my characters. I don't like bad things to happen to them. And obviously, in horror books, terrible things happen to the characters all the time. <laughs> all the time. But usually it happens for a plot-related reason or something that works within the context of the story. One would help. When The Last Dark Tower book came out... Do we want a spoiler here? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the usual thing. Spoilers. Everywhere. And uh, probably going to curse, because you have to curse. Okay. Because the book curses. Yeah, the book curses. Oh, and I also am goodness. a little bit potty-mouthed. A little um, bit. So in the fifth or the sixth book, in the seven-book cycle, Stephen King appears as a, as a character, and that character is basically God. And it then unfolds that the main character, Roland, is also a version of Stephen King in a different world. And throughout book five and throughout book, book six, you're heading toward this culmination, the end of the quest that Roland has been on. And at the very end of book seven, uh, the, the story ends, you know, with Roland ascending the Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. It ends. And then there's an epilogue. And Stephen King, you know, constantly talks about his regular readers. And he address he's speaking directly to you. And he says, listen, you don't want to read the end of this. Trust me, you don't want to know how this story ends. And then you turn the page, and he's like, no, really, seriously, you you don't want to know how this story ends. But, I mean, I'm going to give you the actual ending, so if you insist on doing this to yourself. And then you read the actual ending of the book. And the ending of the book, the last line in this massive thousands of pages and years of my life is the first line in the first book. So the character Roland is basically trapped in this hell, and the hell that unfolds is him killing everyone that he loves over and over and over and over again. And I hated it, and it broke my heart, and I felt that it was a total cop-out, and there you go. And I know there is... You are not the only one. I'm not the only one. You are probably... You are Legion. We are Legion. And wait, let me just say, I'm also a Yankee fan, and he retired after having written those books, and then started writing books about the Red Sox and how awesome it is to be a Red Sox fan. Well, as a Detroit Tigers fan, <laughs> I can I can come down squarely on the side of right in that both the Yankees and the Red Sox suck. Uh-huh. So Stephen King... Let me be polite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're drinking my beer. I'm right? drinking your beer. I'm in your house, you know. That's right. No, Stephen King has this effect on his audience. Mm-hmm. And I have not read all of the Dark Tower books. I think I've read the one long time ago. Okay. And the Gunslinger was the first one. I didn't really get into him, to be honest with you. But that brings us to this new series, which is apparently going to be a trilogy. Uh, started with Miss uh, Mr. Mercedes. Mr. Mercedes. Which you said, did you go back and read? I did. You did. That won all sorts of awards. It and it got did. Lots of things. People uh, love it. People love it. And then this is the second book in that, and the character is Bill Hodges, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the Hodges trilogy. The Hodges trilogy. Give me your uh, your initial impression. 
Um, well, I thought that the book was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, not really very much happens over the course of the book. Uh, it's basically a, a short mystery story, but mm -hmm. it's 300 pages long. Um, it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's like 340 yeah. or 350. The actual story itself, I feel like, could have could have been squeezed into about a, a buck yeah. 80, you know? Yeah. <laughs> now, just reading the description, mm -hmm. I immediately thought of misery because, of course, you do, uh -huh. right? There's an obsessive fan of an author, mm -hmm. and hilarity ensues, right? right? <laughs> Very um, much so. But this was nowhere near misery. It did not have the same wonderful characters. It did mm -hmm. not have the the same discussion of the creative process. Right. I think all of that was just sort of assumed. I did. I will say that I, I liked the beginning. Mm -hmm. The beginning, I thought, okay. Great, you're going to start off with the whiz bang murder, okay? And this is not a spoiler because I mean it, it had this is like it happens literally in the first four pages. Right. It starts off from there, and you've got this character that gives you this idea that he's killing the author because he's obsessed with the author's work and he doesn't like where it went. Mm -hmm. Okay. I initially was like, okay, this is like this is like misery, but if if this is going to be like misery, then he's just retelling the same story. I hope there's some sort of twist that turns that it's on on its ear, that he has some other motive. Right. And it's all hidden, and that's what the really discovery is. It turns out there's no other motive. Yeah, no. I, and, you know, I thought that the, in the introduction to the book, like you said, mm -hmm. Rothstein as this, like, reclusive author, you know, yeah. I, I felt like he was... Maybe not exactly, but like they were drawing parallels to like Updike and to, you know, his greatness yeah. and, you know, Rabbit well, Redux and the whole Rabbit trilogy. And right. And it, they were, it was just so on the nose with that. Right. Because it's got, oh, we've got a trilogy and it's, um, what was his name? The Runner. The Runner. The, the runner. runner. The Runner, the Rabbit. I mean, you right. could even exactly. come up with something. And then, uh, Rothstein, mm -hmm. Philip Roth. Mm, gee, I wonder. <laughs> and then it's Salinger, you know, stuck in the, in the woods. Right. I mean, I mean, basically, you just took three iconic things, and you you took you took the cliff notes. You literally took the Wikipedia first paragraph, mm -hmm. and then smashed them together without changing very much at all. Without changing anything, and right. without adding anything. Yeah, you know, like there's no you, you read this Wikipedia entry, and then you created created quote unquote created this right. character with no depth, and it does start out, you know, him recollecting. He's talking about his first wife. He's talking about his memories. He's a very old man. He's in his 80s. He talks about when he was younger and, you know, in the time of his first wife and when Time yeah. Magazine had called him the writer of the century and things like that. Right. So you're getting an idea that he was this great literary mind. And then, obviously, the break-in happens. And I thought, similarly to yourself, you know, Misery, the whole the whole thing that's happening in that book is her slow torture mm -hmm. of this man who created an empire out of books. Yeah. Um, and she wasn't happy with the direction that they went in. Right. She wasn't happy about the death of the character and so on. In, in this one, the, the context is, Hey, we're going to, we're going to rob you. We know you have all of this, mm -hmm. how this money in your house. We know that you have a safe. We know you have all this cash. You're known for being like this crazy person who has all this money. And, the one person is actually interested in the works yeah. and he just, he has a suspicion that there might be more works and he's hoping to right the wrong that was done to the character by Rothstein. So there's a slight difference there, you know, in Misery, yeah. the character, she, she's like, you fix it and he has to write it for her. Whereas in, you know, Finders Keepers, Rothstein has already written the fixing. And I think the, there's an important difference too, because... The author in Misery is a sort of Stephen King analogy. He, he writes popular books mm -hmm. that are serialized. So you can, you can very freely imagine that he would have this wide, very passionate 
audience in this in that in that of way. Middle aged women. Well, yeah. but very much so. Very much so. You know? But you you can you can certainly imagine that it would be something because this was like the twelfth book in Misery or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was, there were many many books that over many many years, much the way that you were angry about the whole Dark Tower series, uh-huh. right? So, I am that woman, right? Exactly. <laughs> Whereas this, three literary novels mm-hmm. that popular, yeah, sure, but they were literary novels that people were arguing about in college classes. It just doesn't lend itself to the same juxtaposition and the same irony that Misery does. It just doesn't, I couldn't really get behind the motive that this person would be so obsessed with this mm-hmm. as to go insane over three books. Yeah. People go insane over Salinger and they make documentaries about it. Right. And they obsess about it. Mm-hmm. But they and murder and yeah, you know. I don't, I just, I don't get it. And I mean, the Rothstein works because he he has this effect not just on the the, the criminal, but also mm-hmm. the young man. You know, yeah. Twenty years later, you right. know, he he's seriously Peter. Con- exactly. Peter is seriously considering. You know, at the very end when it's on fire and everything else, he's like, okay, you know, should I? What should I do? I need yeah. to read these stories. I want to have these stories. So we're led to believe that Rothstein's work is hypnotic, but only to a very small percentage of the readers who who enjoy the works. Right. I the the first when he when he goes back and forth between the 1978 and the 2009 and the back and forth and this is what ties it in Mr Mr Mercedes, right? Mm-hmm. Peter's father mm-hmm. was one of the people that was run down at the city center. Right. Okay? And that's like the first scene in Mr Mercedes. Right. So we're tying the the tying the trilogy together. So I got a little tired with the back and forth, but I did genuinely like when he is sort of Going the the act of going crazy of committing the heinous crime mm-hmm. and then going further and going crazy. I always like that in crime novels when you see that switch point of gone from someone who is merely a criminal mm-hmm. to a psychopath, right? And we get to watch it happen. I mean, there's some kind of delight in that. Mm-hmm. And and it was and that's frankly what King has done well in so many different ways. He takes what starts off. And you have this situation where things are just slightly weird, and then he just makes them, he pushes them to the edge. Right. And so I like that first part. In fact, most of my notes don't start until part two. Okay. When we get the Bill Hodges Right, thing, the, that Bill Hodges right? character. So you've created this character that starts off really well, and then you just stop developing it. Mm-hmm. And then he's just one-dimensional the rest of the way through. Right. And then you introduce Bill Hodges, who is one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And his sidekicks, Holly and... And Jerome. Mm-hmm. Jerome is the best, though. I really like Jerome. Now, having read Mr. Mercedes, I really I'm, enjoy the Jerome character. But I hate the whole where he talks and what does he call it? He's the, picking anything that he does. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's offensive. But it's a big thing in the first book because Then Hodges, it's probably going to be more offensive. It is more book. offensive. But, right. you know, Hodges is trying to help him to, like, become a man and become a responsible person. And, and he's of, leading him away. This is my other thing about this is... In no way do Bill Hodges, Holly, or Jerome affect the story. Right. In almost no way. The only part where you can say they change the story from this direction to this direction is when he shows up at the very end. But even then you could say if he didn't show up. Right, what would have happened? It probably would have turned out roughly the same. Because you're 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 basically grafting this storyline mm-hmm. into the yeah. Hodges. So you bring in Jerome's little sister, who is friends with Peter's little sister. Yep. And so when Peter's little sister is worried about mm-hmm. him, she goes to her friend, who isn't even really her friend anymore, mm-hmm. and talks to her about the situation, and that's how Hodges ends up getting involved. It just really felt 
tacked on yeah. and completely unnecessary. And it would have been a good standalone story, so why did it have to be part of the trilogy? And there was no detecting happening. No. The detective did nothing to no. be a detective. He didn't figure anything yeah. out. You what's, know? What's, Holly browsed the internet on her <laughs> iPad, which he seems to be... Stephen King seems to be obsessed with technology <laughs> and telling us that he's obsessed with technology, but then also not understanding enough to make it an, a part of the story. Right, or interesting. Or interesting, right. I mean, Stephen King talks about his own writing style. He always uses his own typewriter. He yeah. has a typewriter that he got in 1973 as a present. It's the same typewriter that he's written yeah. all of his stories on. So I feel almost like that's why in his books now he has to put in a little bit of tech just to be like, no, I'm not antiquated. Yeah. I'm not an old man. But the tech comes off to, I think to the majority of people, correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes up as old man talking about mm-hmm. technology. And then also, how does this guy go to prison and become a computer expert? Yeah, I mean, goodness, I, I hope our correction system is so... We're so training one- the next generation yeah, of hackers right exactly. there in prison. Well, at least giving them some usable computer skills. That a guy who's now in his 70s mm-hmm. is going to be the computer wizard that's going to go into this right. uh, arts community center mm-hmm. and... The Mac. Revolutionize. Yeah, the Mac. And this is the job that he gets as a parolee, too. Yeah. Like, So this is a job that the government got for him because they knew he had all of these tech skills. Right. You know, at no point are you are you given any information that he's doing. When he's in prison, the thing that you're led to believe that he's doing is to better himself, is helping other prisoners write plea yeah. deals because he's always been a writer. He's always loved the written word. That's what fostered his love for Rothstein. So he's a wordsmith. That he's doesn't effect- make him a techie. He's effectively the same guy that I see on the Highline Park with his little typewriter. It says poetry is $5. Uh-huh. Exactly. And he just writes a poem for it. <laughs> that whole scene that was great where he's he's talking to the con in order to prevent himself from continuing to get raped. Right. You know, the very first time that he realizes is something that he can do and that the con comes over and I was like, oh, I heard you're good with words. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to talk about how you like to stroke her hair gently. And the con is like, oh my God, Miss how romantic. Yeah, you know, that's what all that's all, what all women want to hear is I like to stroke your hair. That's but, what I've been doing wrong all this <laughs> There time. you go. You need oh. to tell more ladies, yeah, I want to stroke your hair. Exactly. <laughs> there were so many cliches. Mm-hmm. Like, I find out I, it's very hard to type the word cliche on my Kindle because for some reason it misses the C all the time. <laughs> I learned this because I wrote it so many times so in my little times. notes. So many cliches, and half of them are just offensive cliches. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's fine to have a character call someone a homo. Mm-hmm. It's really awkward to have the narrator call someone a homo. Right. Unless the narrator, unless it's a first person, right? Right, but this is not. This is, no. This is, you may be attributing thoughts to him, but honestly, it comes off as offensive. And then when you describe that he's sitting there and I think he might still be attracted to the occasional young male, <laughs> that is, it's offensive. And I have no problem being offended in literature. Sure. It's it's fine, but when it's has nothing to do with the story. Well, it's like inadvertent, you know? Like right. if there if you're trying to be offensive as a as a writer, right. like you're trying to elicit a feeling from your audience, but mm-hmm. that doesn't feel like that. No. It feels like it's just a poor turn of phrase and it comes across right. to the the audience. It's like, what are you talking about? I I I could see a character speaking like that mm-hmm. and, and saying that to someone's face. Sure. But when the narrator does it, then I'm just like, what? Really? Really? You know? Calm calm down. And there were just so many of those things. Mm -hmm. And I I say just they pushed me out of the story. I kept stopping and going, who says this? Right. Who talks like this? Who talks like this? I will. I'm going to 
I'm going to calm, calm down a little bit and <laughs> give you some time to speak. Well, I just want to say, just kind of, again, off to the yeah. side, Stephen, you know, having read so much of his work, Stephen, my buddy Steve, he uses, like, the same The Steves are, as you would probably call him in this book. The big the ass. Um, the big ass. <laughs> people are called Barbster. I know, it's oh. terrible. Well, I think one of the things that he does, he returns to the same things over and over and over again. And he has like his turns of phrase that he uses where anytime you read them, you're like, this is Stephen King. Yes, thank you. Oh, it's um, time. You know, you, uh, you, you'll be reading through and he'll say, you know, one of his favorite things to say ever, and it's in almost every single one of his books, is all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And it's in every book he has ever written. And, you know, there are times when you use a word over and over again. The and but you know chicken these things are all repeatedly used in books but to actually use the same turn of phrase over and over and over again you know he he like I said he refers to his constant reader so he's putting it in as an Easter egg but it's just irritating you know why would these characters be talking like this this particular turn of phrase was originally used by an old man in the deep south and then it was used by an old man in Maine and now it's used by a young con it just it doesn't you know he just likes the way that it sounds he likes the way it rolls off his tongue and he uses it all the time to no effect because no effect. It, it doesn't it doesn't add anything to the story and i felt like that was what it, what was the the phrase for the the book um shit don't mean shit or something like shit that don't mean shit as iconic phrases go <laughs> nowhere in the pantheon so weak so weak because yeah sure shit don't mean shit but that's what you say when you're 13 yeah like you know rothstein is writing a book about a man yeah. and Admittedly, we don't find out very much about the the story that's happening in Runner, mm-hmm. but you are given to understand that he runs away in New York as yeah. a young man. So shit don't mean shit is a reasonable phrase for him to have been making, except maybe not. I don't even know if they talk that way in the 20s. Even if it was, mm-hmm. as a literary creation, I just don't think it would have the sticking power because it's something that a trucker can say mm-hmm. and mean it in just the same way. It doesn't have sort of cachet to to rise above. I mean, that's what these kind of iconic things that we, you know, attribute to Hemingway or, or something like that, they rise above. And it's not just the turn of phrase. It's not just the alliteration. It's the context that we mm-hmm. we understand it and, and these kind of things. And we weren't given any of that. And I just have a hard time believing yeah. that something profane like that would fit. Would fit. You know, and I mean, anywhere. sure, like the idea of having a shirt that says shit don't mean shit, like, sure, that's that's very mm-hmm. cute. And especially in the society that we live in, I could definitely see it being like a pop culture thing. Right. But it would be something on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It would be something <laughs> that Rob Kardashian says. Like, it would right. not be this great literary mind. Shit don't mean shit. Because it's deep. That is yeah. some deep shit right there. That is. <laughs> and then I also felt the name dropping with authors. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King, I'm sure, is well-read. He probably has read a thousand times more books than either of us have read. Maybe. Right? He's, I, I'm sure he's read all of Philip Roth. Sure. Right? That's probably he's true. He's probably read all of John Updike. Mm-hmm. Okay? Great. But you don't have to constantly be putting things in to remind me. And so, like, on the nose. Mm-hmm. Like, the few times where he refuses to tell you exactly what he's quoting, they're so obvious. Mm-hmm. As to just like hit you over the head, right? And if you've read it, then okay, you, you, you're you're acceptable. Right. You're a literate person. <laughs> and if you haven't yeah. read it, then you think this is just King's genius. Yeah, you know, like he he quotes something from T. S. Eliot mm-hmm. from Love Song of Jail for Proof Rock, which is 
quite possibly one of the most well-known. There was a, I remember there was like a commercial during the Super Bowl hmm. that read out parts of the poem around whatever they were trying to trying to sell. Yeah, I mean, probably when when a piece of poetry makes it into a Super Bowl commercial. Right. It's right? prevalent. It's it's prevalent. And he mentions it that uh, Bill Hodges heard a snippet of a poem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As if he just wanders through the cafes of Paris and mm-hmm. in his in his earlier days when he was writing in his moleskin notebooks. Right. I like that too. Let's repeatedly yeah. talk about the notebooks. You know, the How notebook, whenever you get a moleskin, it has a little insert in it that says, exactly, that says, this is the notebook yeah. that Hemingway made famous. So I'm just going to continually beat on the fact that, that Rothstein only wrote with moleskin. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you know, Jerome later on in the book is like, moleskins? Huh, how interesting. That must mean something. Yeah, Holly is like, moleskins are really expensive. Who would write in a moleskin? And this is the deductive reasoning that leads to them figuring out that these notebooks must belong to Rothstein. Right. You know, because that's not a stretch. It couldn't possibly be anything else. Right. Well, and no one else uses moleskins. You don't have one, I don't have one. No, it's not like they have a store on West Broadway. No, you know, or that they sell them in Barnes & Noble. Yeah, This is a literary thing, and only (laughs) literary people who are in the right. know, know about multi And they're complaining, they're, they're saying that they're fancy and expensive. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that Hemingway originally used them was because they were cheap. Right. That's why he they used them. They were affordable them. and yes. they were durable. Yes, you know? they, they didn't have leather. They had this cheap cardboard that we now think is fancy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because everything else is now staples. And they talk about it in cardboard. the book and they're like, oh yeah, you know, it's covered in mole skin. Like, you've obviously never seen a moleskin. Uh, and I think it's probably moleskine or something. Right. Well, yeah, and people say moleskine. Moleskine. You know, but whatever. I've it's been corrected moleskine. many times. <laughs> well, uh, if I agree with you and there's only two of us this. here, then we're both right. We're good. You know? <laughs> we're good. Uh, so I just, I had so many of those moments mm-hmm. where it, and I, and I just say, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack and say, it's not good to be well read. It's not good to put those things in there and have, but they were so jarring and it's just bad writing. I, when I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be one of those where they talk about is Stephen King over, you know? No. And no. No. Everybody, it's a spellbinding mm-hmm. mystery and wow, he can really, what, a, what range does Stephen King have where he can write a book like The Stand and then he can write something like the Dark Tower series and then he can write Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Then he can just write one of the best detective novels mm-hmm. we've ever read. You've clearly never read a detective novel. The, the book isn't billed anywhere as being a part of the trilogy. Like I said, when you look it up online, it does say it's book two in the yeah. Hodges. It's nowhere on the book. Right. It's nowhere indicated on the book. It wasn't, you know, when it, the book first came out, people weren't talking about, oh, the long-awaited sequel to Mr. Mercedes. But so much of the characterization that happens in this book, you have to have read right. the first book to know what they're talking about. You know, uh... Holly's cousin, who had the car that killed all these people in Mr. Mercedes, mm-hmm. you know, they reference her repeatedly. They even are talking at the end of Finders Keepers about how this Mercedes has been through so much and it's so old. But you have no context yep. for it without having read the it book. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And in in a strong series where you're representing, okay, mm-hmm. this is actually a trilogy, the books follow a linear flow. 
but you don't need to have read any of the right. books in the series to know who these people are. What? Holly's craziness, and I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting a little. Please Holly's rant. crazy. Because if you're ranting, then I'm not then ranting. Then you're not. <laughs> and you sound crazy. Yeah. No, I think we both sound okay. crazy. We're both crazy. We're I'm going to edit this to make books. sure we sound okay, crazy. Okay, good. Because um, this book drove me crazy. Yeah, it was really frustrating. Yeah. You know... Holly is is a lunatic. She's a crazy person. Yeah. But you have no context for her craziness. And they keep talking. Jerome talks about it. Mm-hmm. Hodges talks about it. Everybody's talking about how much better she is. But we as the readers are like, first of all, what's wrong with her? Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't seem that crazy to us, except she has all these quirky intuitions. And apparently she has all of this ability to, like, understand the subtext. But they dismiss her and as just being crazy. she movies at yeah. nauseum. <laughs> and she's totally into soundtracks. Yes, oh, she like At the end, she drives off with the Godfather soundtrack. Okay, and I'm sorry. Do we need to know that they go to see 22 Jump Street? Right. Not 21 Jump Street. <laughs> 22 Jump Street. <laughs> oh, it's a terrible movie. As opposed to The Fault in Our Stars, mm-hmm. or I don't remember what the other one was. But, but yeah, you know, she... Like, she he doesn't want to see those movies. He's willing to see the cop drama. He's willing to see the... So this is it's Stephen a King telling comedy. you how trendy. That's true. Right, right. So this is Stephen King showing you how hip he is. You know, he's like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, you know, 60 and I'm not really in touch, but I'm really in touch because I know what the kids are watching what these those, days. Those darn kids are right? watching. And Holly is 30 and Hodges is 50, so it's not even like yeah. they're the kids. You know, right. these are normal adults. Right. Did you see either of those movies? Uh, I don't you saw th- Twenty Two no. Jump Street, didn't you? No, no. <laughs> I mean, without Richard Grieco, what's the point? Of the well, whole the, the, the Deloises, but the, the Deloises aren't in this either. So oh, wow. I was so I had such a crush on one of those Deloise brothers. When I was well, a kid. who wouldn't? And then also the uh, what was the girl? Didn't she marry Mike Tyson? She did. Robin yes. Gibbons. Holly, yes, or Robin Gibbons. You're yes, right. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Robin Gibbons. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't that into the girl. But sure. And then, of course, Johnny Depp. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah, he was so handsome. So, okay, before I started ranting, were you ready to come in here and be like, I love this book, and you're just like... I wasn't. Um, Okay, I just want to make sure. I did not love this book. I think that it might... Once the trilogy is done, I might be able to look at it and be like, okay, that didn't suck. But as a standalone, it kind of sucked. It kind of sucked. If you're looking at add it as a follow-up to Mr. Mercedes, it doesn't really add... See, and I think that's the thing. When you're going to have a book that's part of a series, mm-hmm. each book needs to add to what happened in the book before. So, Mr. Mercedes, yeah. full disclosure, I still have about 60 pages left in it, so I haven't completely finished it, but I clearly know where it's going, yes. because I've read the second book in the series. It's good. Yeah. It wasn't terrible. It probably would have been really good as a standalone book. This second one, like you said, like we both said, the only real connection to the first one is in this car and the cast of characters, mm-hmm. but not the actual narrative. And it's just I, so many loose ends that we're trying I to just tie say, together. You sell the car. You do. <laughs> it's true. You sell the car. Uh, especially honestly, if you're an accomplished criminal. Honestly, the car probably never makes it back to the owner. The right. police just tear it apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. But if, even if you get it back, you sell the car. You sell the car. Nobody it's a keeps the car that was Nobody part of a the... mass murder. Absolutely not. I mean, yeah, sure, it's a Mercedes from the 80s. That's vintage. Goodness. I guess. I didn't keep my 1981 Plymouth Horizon. 
<laughs> I didn't need to. You didn't need to. Cars from the 80s yeah, should all be turned into spoons. Definitely. Or at least sold to a collector. I mean, right. we live in a very grim and macabre world. Rule 34. You could sell that shit mm-hmm. on eBay and be like, yeah, this is the car that killed yeah. eight people outside and, and wounded another 60 outside of a job fair two years ago. Exactly. You know. All right. <laughs> I have more complaints. Okay, please go. Because I, I just I happened to see one of my one of my notes that's right here, and I think my my note was explainify much, because he goes to such lengths to explain the series of thought that goes into make this huge leap of logic and justify it. The one that I have here is he unplugs various cords, including the one leading to the shiny box stamps vigilant security systems. The cameras feed directly to the laptop's hard drive, and so there are no automatically made DVDs. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. A system like that would be a little too pricey for a small business, like Andrew Halliday, Rare Editions. But one of the cords he unplugged went to a disc burner add-on, so his old pal could have made DVDs and stored security footage if mm-hmm. he had desired. Ridiculous. I mean, oh my god. Right, you could have condensed that to two sentences. You could have just left it out. That it is in no way important. At all. And said, oh, here's some DVD copies. Mm-hmm. There was right? footage of this thing that I need. Yeah. You don't need to talk about which wire is which. I smashed the security system. Nobody asked the details. Nobody cares. The, you're writing a book. Just say smash the security system. Mm-hmm. Let us figure it out. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants to control what your perception right. of the story is. Another example of this is when Peter calls and leaves a message. Oh my God, it's horrible. He leaves the long message of where he's going to be, why he's going to be there. I'm going to be vice president. I'm not really sure about being the vice president. Do you think it'll get me a homecoming date? <laughs> this is not what you do. Oh, no. Nobody like, does You that. can call and you can check up on this. If you're really worried about it, by all means, Teenagers don't even the tell their parents that much information. They don't. But, much less someone who just threatened their life. But see, now this particular teenager, Peter, is not your typical teen. Peter is potentially a criminal mind, much like Maury. So you're, you're, you're dealing with an intelligence here that is so far beyond the pale. No one gets Rothstein as a teenager except for these few disturbed individuals, people who are likely to lose themselves to these books. I just want to, for all of you listening out there, I want you to understand that Lori's irony-ridden face... With her intensity is just fantastic. It sells it wonderfully. I just want you to know. She pulls it off as an actor. The gesticulating really adds something to it, too. You're you're just missing out by not seeing the gestures. But you're absolutely right. It's just ridiculous Mm -hmm. how much he has... Things have to fall exactly exactly how he says, or none of it makes sense. None of it works. Okay, one of the things that I was reading after finishing the novel were questions regarding whether Stephen King should be included among the great literary giants of the 20th century. Mm. So Maybe the 21st, because what do we have in the 21st century? We've got E.L. James. So far. You know, yeah. exactly. So that's the question. Having read this, mm. do you think, is he part of the pantheon of great American literature? I think he is a part of the pantheon of great pop literature, okay. uh, maybe popular fiction. It is unfortunate that there is a distinction between great literature, like mm-hmm. between literature and between fiction. But I think the fact of the matter is, is that there is a difference between those two things. I think we're coming to the, the idea of art versus entertainment. Mm-hmm. Now, they are the same thing. They are different sides of the same coin. Sure. Art doesn't always have to be entertainment, and entertainment doesn't always have to be art. Mm -hmm. Every reality show tells you that, Mm -hmm. right? 
It is, it is in a way, and I'm, and I mean that in a, not in a snarky sense, I'll kind of in a snarky sense. Maybe a little snarky. But, I, but I'm saying there, if we're just putting a camera and watching people interact, that's not art. Right. In the sense that there's no creation. We're just, it's, we're documenting what's going on mm-hmm. and, and it's still entertaining, right? Sure. And then there is art that is, is, that is disturbing. I think the Schindler's List is probably one of the greatest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. And it's disturbing to watch. Disturbing. It is not entertaining. Mm-hmm. I do not have fun watching it. Mm-hmm. It is not something that I sit, you know, I'm going to make some snacks and sit down and watch Schindler's List with the fans. Let's have some people no. over. Let's have some popcorn. Yeah. But it's an amazing work of art. Right. Right? There is a continuum. Maybe I'll have a better idea of whether this was a good book after reading the third. But right <sighs> now, I don't feel very positive on it. I'm, I'm sorry. I... I'm a, I'm a big fan of series of books, okay. but I'm also a big fan of you need to be able to read them out of order mm-hmm. and still enjoy them, mm-hmm. and it should make you want to go back and reread. Exactly. Right? I don't take that as a reason to write a bad novel is that it's part of a series. No. Right? I agree. So I, I judge this. So I go back to the question. He's regarded as the greatest living American writer. Really? He really is. By whom? I don't know. People? People? I mean, certainly within... No disrespect, but many people who <laughs> many people who uh, read you said books that a little extra loud. Read just to crap. Make sure okay, I want to make sure I don't I don't I don't have a low opinion of people who read crap. But the best-selling series of the last couple of years has been the Fifty Shades of Grey right. series. People read crap, but so people don't know what crap is, and I don't say that because no, that's not true. No, no, have no. you seen crap? Have I seen? Yeah, like actual I have crap. A... No, but have you seen crap? You know what crap is. You know what it looks like. You know what <laughs> it smells like. Shit don't mean shit. Like. That's what I'm shit, <laughs> Except shit do mean shit. Shit do mean when shit. When we're talking about shit, shit actually does right. mean shit. So when, when. Would you have another? Because I, oh, yeah. I feel like I'm if you don't have another, sorry, if you don't have another beer, uh, you're just going to, you're going to get crazy. Uh-huh. If I don't have another And what do you beer. think? What do you think of my, uh. My standard old brown dog here. Uh, this is a very nice beer. Yeah? Uh, I do enjoy the flavor. It's uh, very mild. It's good. Yeah. It's good. And, of course, like I said, I, I don't know how to use this bottle opener. But, like I it's said, my, really... my I can't hear. <laughs> my favorite part is, is the dog. <laughs> I love him. So you're just Her, staring olive. at the dog? I olive. love Olive. Okay. Um, but, no, it's a very tasty beer. You know, I have to say I'm not uh, much of a beer connoisseur. But um, it tastes good. Usually yeah. beer doesn't taste good. That's the point of it. It's to taste good? I, I think so. It's to, to add a level I, of intoxication. No, I don't think you've had enough beer. In my life? I don't think I've so. I've had a lot of beer in yeah, my life. Yeah, the wrong beer. <laughs> That's probably true. I drink a lot of Guinness, though. So. Well, Guinness is good, but it's Guinness not... But, good. Okay, I'm going to make an analogy here. Okay. With the beer. Please and do. The <laughs> a lot of people sit like beer. They say they like beer, but they haven't had the range of beer that's out there. It's a varied and wonderful world of beer, okay. right? So you can have your stouts, you can have your porters, you can have your Hefeweizens, you can have your lagers, you can have your ales. You've got this whole world of things. Most people just drink lagers, right? Mm-hmm. They're fine with that. So they tell everybody, I like dr- I like drinking beer. And the, the whole range of what they've drank is Budweiser, Bud Light, Coors Light. And then they went to that their uncle's hearts that had that thing. And I don't know what it was, but it really good. He told me it was beer. This is a tragedy that you're telling me It right is now. a tragedy. And I believe that people read the same way. Because someone, a friend of theirs, thinks, oh, you don't read enough. I'm going to give you a James Patterson. Oh, God. 
Okay, so you get your James Patterson, and it's engaging. Mm-hmm. You've never read anything, so this is just a fun experience. Reading is fun. Reading is fun. Re- I mean, this is one thing that came out of here, and that was actually the first highlight that I made was a good highlight. Uh, for readers, one of life's most electrifying discoveries is that they that they are readers. Oh, Not just so capable good. of doing it. Morris already was. Yeah. That was great. But in love with it. Hopelessly head over heels. Head over heels. That was the first thing that I underlined. If we're going to build it up that... This obsession stems from that obsession. Mm-hmm. I'm in from a love of literature. From, from a, a love, love of, of literature, you know. Let the let the thing that is so beautiful drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm that is so, that is a storyline I will follow and have on many an occasion. Oh yeah. There are so many. There there is a long literary history of the beauty driving people crazy, mm-hmm. and that's. That's where I thought it was going. So I had very high hopes at that moment. Right. But no, it, it's almost exactly the opposite. You know, right. Morris is driven crazy, not by his love of reading, but mm-hmm. by his hatred for the character who he once loved. Right. And I mean, sure, we've all had people in our lives who we cared about and who we no longer mm-hmm. care about or who our love for that person has become hate, but they're actual people in our lives. Right. The idea of, of this, he's not in love with books. He's not in love with the art. He is obsessed with the character and with the wrong decisions that that character has made and is unable, unable rather, to see the wrong decisions he's making as a result of this. Yeah. And just to bring it back to the beer. Uh (laughs) Full circle. In in the same way that if if you've never had beer and someone gives you a beer and you you don't like the taste initially, but it gives you that high, Mm -hmm. you think, well, this is great. This is great. This is so good. And you never try anything else. That's true. But my point is that if someone gives you, if your first book is something like James Patterson or something like that, mm-hmm. you you started out with Budweiser. And it was your first intoxicating experience. And so you want more of that. Right. So you go get the same label at the store. Mm-hmm. And if you slowly... But they're not interested in the ale. But know? most people aren't until they have it. I know you are a very well-bred person. And I'm really excited that you picked this book. <laughs> because I would not have thought to pick up a Stephen King book no. since the late 90s, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I was like, oh, we'll do The Stand. And then I was like, no, everybody's read The Stand. Right. You know, this is exactly. Stephen King. So this, and I thought that was great because it allows us to talk about Stephen King, mm-hmm. but also talk about modern reading and all that kind of, and that kind of thing. But the other thing, and this, I thought about this, Stephen King is a perfect example. I think a lot of people like Stephen King because of the movies that were made about his books. Mm-hmm. They equate that with Stephen King oh, and not so the books. Because the movies are so bad. Some of them are. Some of them are great. I mean, just The Shining is really good. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank, but that was not... Most people are, have never oh, read that I book. understand. Well, it's not a book so much. It's a novella, it's, it's a, right? Yeah, it's even hard to call it a novella. It's more of a short story. Okay. And, and, and the essentials are there in the short story, but certainly not... It's not painted as beautifully as right. the movies, Shawshank. Right? And Shawshank has been redone in everything. So even if you've never seen Shawshank, you know Shawshank. Right. Similarly, Stand By Me, right? He wrote Stand the screenplay for Stand By Me. Right. Legitimately, I'm going to give him some credit for that one. Because that's legitimately a good movie. Really, like, really good. I think all around that's just... I think he writes good. good children. I just thought with Jerome, mm-hmm. who is in the novel sparingly... Very much so. He made pains to make us understand... That he was black, but not just black, 
black in the way you see on TV but only in sometimes. the 80s. But only sometimes. But he can snap out of it. And that's, see, that's the offensive part. Because if this was, if he was, if Jerome was a stereotype, right. you'd be like, okay, this is offensive. Exactly. But it's fiction. What he instead does is, here's Jerome, who's going to go to Harvard. Who's this going to a, Harvard. Exactly. He's, I'm sorry, I was going back to Mr. Mercedes. Yeah. So this is a character who is intelligent, who has a job, who mm-hmm. works hard, who takes care of his family. All of these positive things, especially considering that he is a, a man of color and he's a young man of color who comes from an environment mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily supportive of that. He's accomplished all of this. Right. But I need to take him back a step. Right. Because he has this pickaninny in him. He has to knock everybody down. Mm-hmm. Right. He has to give them what he thinks is an endearing flaw. Right. But it's just, it's an offensive flaw. It is an offensive flaw. I mean, flaw. The, the whole thing about the book dealer being gay, mm-hmm. it has no bearing on the story Mm-mm. whatsoever. Mm-mm. None whatsoever. It's just his fatal flaw. It's just, he's got to make him into this thing. And then he also makes him fat and slovenly and, right. and loose with the morals. Right. And well, similarly with the rape victim. Right. As you're watching her progress yeah. throughout the year, she's just getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. And yes, that is a thing that happens to people. And certainly it's a thing that happens to depressed people. Right. But the only reason that you're highlighting it here is to be like, look at this right. crazy old fat bitch who won't let this thing go. That's exactly what right. he is saying. That's what you. it comes off as. Exactly. I, and I certainly, what I know of Stephen King as a human is counter to all oh, of this. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, he, he's, he's... not a scumbag. Yeah, he seems like a very... I mean, he seems to give to charity and things like that that I would support. But all in all, he just doesn't, he doesn't, he's not Donald Trump out there saying that all the Mexicans are racist or anything like that, right? So but why would you make your narrator do it? That's the thing. Have your characters do that and that tells me something about their character. Exactly. Right? Having the narrator Having do it tells me something about you. And, and and in this case, it's something that I don't even believe to be true about Stephen King. This is the thing. So and, why are you presenting and this? And so what kind of narrator do you want me to have here? Right. What are you trying to instill into me so that I view your characters in a way? I mean, that's the job of a narrator is to basically move you and point you in the direction and say, look at this, look at this, look at this, right? Mm -hmm. In a third-person narrative such as this, Mm -hmm. right? If you've got a first-person narrative, well, all bets are off. Right. They're just, they're in it for themselves, Mm -hmm. which is so much fun, Mm -hmm. right? It can be great. And a third-person narrative by its nature, which why it works so well for detective novels, is because it is that cool distance. Right. And I think, you know, Dashiell Hammett or any of these with this, you know, Mickey Spillane, mm-hmm. these these pulp detective novels and the, and the way that they can um, sort of survey a scene mm-hmm. and just pick out these things. And all the narrator's doing is doing that little, just the highlight, like, look at that. Okay. Now you're done with that. Look at that. Okay. Now look at this. So why would you say, look at this. He's a homo. Look at this. Right. Yes, I'm master. Mm-hmm. Why would you? Why are you? Why are you highlighting? Why are you things? highlighting that? Yeah. I wanted the narrator to take a step back, mm-hmm. and I wanted the narrator just to give me the detective story. That's the other thing that bothered me. There's no detective story. There's no mystery. There isn't. I think King, and this is just to to, to backtrack a little bit. I think. He thinks that in order to make a protagonist or any character relatable, Mm -hmm. they need to have a fatal flaw. And what he views as a fatal flaw is often something like, I'm crazy or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a woman or I'm whatever it is Mm -hmm. that he views as a major flaw. I'm, I'm homosexual. I'm colored, whatever it is. And he plays that up and he plays it up repeatedly to hammer to the audience 
this is a flaw in this and character. I, I think it may just be a problem of not going further with that. To say that's okay. To say that Jerome, mm-hmm. because he's black, mm-hmm. has had a difficult life being where he grew up. Totally fine. That's fine. But you need to go deeper than because he talks like he is from the nineteen twenties blackface movie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for, there has never been an African American in their life who has talked like that. Right. That is always what white people think black Americans project onto them. Right. And especially if they were going to, it would certainly not be in the company of a 65-year-old white detective. Right. Not as a joke. Right. This With is someone not- that you went through something very, that you are personally like connected to in a way that you're not connected with with anybody you know or i can even see like the jerome character i can even see how as a defense mechanism among Mm -hmm. his peers when he was in high school how this is a persona he may have created to be like hey guys i'm just like you except oh i'm black let me make a joke out of it so that we can all hang together i don't think that that's something that a high school student brings to the white adult males around him. And if there is an adult male who actually cares about him, looks over his glasses at that guy when he does that and says, you're better than that. Right. You need to not be doing this. You need to not do that. You should put this away. That's offensive, not to me, but to you. Right. And, you know, that's what I expect. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that maybe it's just, again, I would say, I don't want to say laziness because that give some kind of motive to Stephen King, like he's just, he would rather play his Xbox or something like that. But I think there's intent. So it's kind of the, almost the opposite. It's not right. like he's like, that's I why, that's why I say laziness is not the, not the right word. I think it's just, he, it's worked before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's, there's such a disconnect between what he thinks the tool is mm-hmm. and what the effect is on the reader. Right. That it no longer translates correctly. He's mm-hmm. moved so far away from that now. And so, I wonder how can the same people, how can people read this book and give those glowing reviews? I don't know. I don't know if there are people who have not read Stephen King before. You know, I really don't. I would, I would almost go the other way if you have read, because having read Stephen King before and having enjoyed greatly some of those novels, but then also having had bad experiences with some of them, I was prepared to really like this book. Mm Mm-hmm. And being a fan of the genre of detective novels, I mean, Dennis Lehane is absolutely one of my favorite authors, right? Uh, John Lucario, which is not exactly the same thing, but it's sort of it's still espionage and you've got that that sort of thing. But I love these kind of things. And as I said, you know, Raymond Chandler and all this kind of the stuff. The classics. Yeah. But I think what's very popular in mystery right now is, like, the Harlan Cobins. The, like, short chapters. Yeah. Constantly moving, constantly moving. And so I think if you're interested in that, this might be more, you know, kind of in your wheelhouse. But, see, Harlan Coben is just a plot machine, and he does it well. He does. And that's that's his strength. If that was all this was, I would be fine with that. That's true. Right? I got no problem with that. Lee Child, I can can read that. Just a plot machine. Right. Right? Something interesting is going to happen on the next page. Patterson. Patterson's a perfect example of that. He literally is that. But again, the, bring it back to Stephen King. I think Stephen King has moved away from literature and into entertainment. When was he ever in literature, though? <sighs> okay. When you say the word literature, mm-hmm. are you using it in the, well, like the classic definition of what a book needs to be? I'm asking. I don't have a, I don't know. 
I think that Stephen King is a, an accomplished writer, and I think that he used to spend a lot of time crafting stories, whether that's literature or whether yeah. that's pop fiction, I don't really know, but I think that he used to really spend a lot of time making a story that was compelling. His writing wasn't always the best. Mm -hmm. He's always been too wordy. I mean, well, maybe not. But so the first couple, couple of novels, I mean, yeah, and oh God, Dickens. Right. But, but Dickens was presented in a serialized format, so it yeah. Yes, yeah, so there's, well there's a lot of him. context for that. Yes, you're exactly. Absolutely right. Um, absolutely right. King, I feel like, you know, his first couple of novels weren't that big. And then throughout the 80s and the 90s, his books all became doorstops. But he took the time to craft a story with characters that were relatable, that yeah. were interesting. Once upon a time, Stephen King used to take the time to come up with a storyline, to flesh it out, mm -hmm. to give you characters who, whether you liked them or not, were actually people. I hated Dolores Claiborne. I hated that book. Mm -hmm. I thought that book was terrible. Never she read was it, a believable right. protagonist. Right. As far as being a person... Well, it, it, and it's, there's, there's a great literary history of hating the protagonist. It's mm -hmm. kind of well, the point. Because they're believable. They could in, be in, people. In Misery, I hated both of them. Oh, they're awful. They're, they're both, both awful. awful. He's a dick and she's crazy. But it's gripping to read it. It really is. I don't feel... I kind of want her to beat the shit out of him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also am like, she's crazy. What's she's gonna, totally how's crazy. it going to get out of it? And they actually did a good job with that movie, too. That movie was a very good movie. You know, yeah. over, over all the rest of his, yeah. it's really that one in The Shining is pretty much it. Yep. That are books that were then adapted. But That's anyway, yeah. Time. So it just goes back to the point of once upon a time, he took time to craft people and to yeah. craft characters that were likable. And now that he knows... Now that he's crafted all of these archetypes, he reuses the archetypes in modern liter in modern books that he writes, but without giving you the background or the feel for the right. character that you used to have. Do you have any final words of wisdom? I guess, in closing, if I was going <laughs> to say something specific about this book, if you're going to read it, lower your expectations, because... The That's next terrible. You can't do that. You can't tell people to lower their expectations. Okay. Um, because then just tell them to read something else. There's plenty of other stuff to there read. There is plenty there. of other stuff to read, but you know, if you wanna, if you wanna give him a chance, if you're like me and you're okay, mad we, at him, you know what we he's already sold millions of these things. We are no obligation to help Stephen King. Okay, so don't read this book. Okay, so that's what you're just, saying. Just, just don't read this book. <laughs> It's going to disappoint you. It's going to frustrate you. Ultimately, if you want to know what this book is about, read the Wikipedia. It'll give you a much more uh, succinct right. idea of what it is that happens. Because if, so, if you just want to go to a Stephen King party and, and make people under think that you've read the book, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just there's cliff notes. It's, there you know, is cliff notes. Yeah. If you want to go to a party and you want to pretend that you've read the book. There was this guy, and he was, like, a total recluse, and he wrote a bunch of books, and uh, somebody stole them and killed a bunch of people, and then in the end, all of the works got burned up, and nobody got to read them anyway, so... Except on. for that one kid. Right. Except for the one kid, who then apparently goes on to write for The New Yorker. Oh, one of my favorite things, <gasps> one of my favorite things, and Stephen King has done this before, is when he describes the photographers mm -hmm. from The New Yorker and oh, how God. they are... Wearing jeans that looked like they were just bought and pressed. Mm -hmm. Like all New Yorkers. This is we, we dress like this all the time. Right. You know, we we're just, we're wearing like, our trendy clothes and when we try to go into other places and blend in, we, we have to be off the rack in. from Kmart, you yeah. know. You I think he forgets 
that 75% of New York comes from the Midwest. Yeah. And most, most New Yorkers are not New Yorkers. <laughs> you know? Just, I, I, and he totally does that all the time. When all he talks about, oh, you can see this is off the rack. And sometimes he does it as these people are trying to blend in. Right. And sometimes he does it as these people are photographers or whatever. Yeah. But it's a, it's a rope that he returns to often. All the time. <laughs> is Mr. Mercedes that much better? I would say if you had not read any of this, yes, Mm -hmm. it starts, it's very compelling the way that it starts out. You're like, what is happening Mm -hmm. here? But again, he revisits a lot of his favorite things. You know, you have this, this disturbed young man who is, you know, deeply damaged and he's having a incestuous relationship with his mother and they don't actually have sex, but there's certainly a lot of, you know, oh, she calls him her honey baby and she calls him her baby boy. And he takes a lot of pictures of her in lingerie and, you know, he, he has a relationship with her that is deeply okay. inappropriate. So if it was a standalone novel, How Mr. Very Mercedes, yeah. <laughs> it would be. Um, it would be. Did I just do the Stephen King thing? Or I'm a just little bit. I'm just going to drop some names. Right I did here. that intentionally. Yeah, I, I kind of figured that you bring it back full circle, first circle, turn it around. Um, yeah, I mean, it was Mr. Mercedes is good as a standalone novel. This one would have been good as a standalone condensed novella, and then we'll have to see in another year or two what happens with the next one. That's and that's the last thing I'm going to say. Stephen, if you're listening to this, once upon a time, you used to take three, four, five years to write your books. You're now taking a month, or I'm sorry, a year, maybe 18 months, and it shows. But I still love you secretly. Just stop rooting for the Red Sox. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's never going to happen. But yeah. Just root for the Tigers. Yeah, you can root for that. That would be better than than rooting for the Red Sox. The Tigers. Yeah. And I know you're also a Patriots fan. Oh my god. <laughs> the man throws what is effectively a perfect game. Because frankly, being in that guy was a perfect decision. Mm-hmm. But... I agree. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta say, yeah. shit don't mean shit. <laughs> I'm gonna do this. Okay? <laughs> That's the t-shirt right mm-hmm. there. 